0: I want to uh, begin the, the teachings um, this evening by just uh, expressing uh, appreciation for, for each of you, for all of you, yeah, for showing up to your lives, to this experience, yeah, to the practice. And we've mentioned um, a few times, uh, we've mentioned this uh, teaching of the Buddha of the Two Arrows. And I um, just want to, to read uh, a short piece from, from this teaching, from this uh, text, where uh, the Buddha is explaining yeah, the, the image, the, the simile. And he says, just as if a person... Was shot by an arrow and right afterwards was shot by another arrow so that they would feel the pains of two arrows just like that in the same way when the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person (laughs) the ordinary person yeah like us just like that when the ordinary person is touched By a feeling of pain, yes, touched by a feeling of pain. They sorrow, grieve, and lament. They beat their breast, become distraught. So they feel two pains, just like the two arrows. And so this teaching, yeah, uh, kind of the initial arrow, the first arrow of the pain, yeah, physical or mental. Yeah, that we experience and then that second arrow of the reactivity yeah in the way of relating and how we relate to that experience and we've kind of been unpacking that over the days yeah we feel it in the body yeah as a contraction as a sense of friction resistance yeah aversion tension yeah we feel it in the mind in very similar ways in the heart and mind yeah resistance pushing away aversion yeah And then, sometimes, you know, escalating even more, yeah, to, you know, maybe the sense Nathan mentioned this afternoon, the inner critic, you know, why am I reacting like this, or this is my fault, or shame, or blame, yeah, all of these kind of added layers, yeah. And we can say, you know, each of them, we can feel, when we feel into our experience, each of these will be like another arrow, yeah, it's actually maybe more than two yeah, in our experience mm-hmm. and kind of we know this yeah, I know it very well in my own experience and from uh, you know, working with people over the years yeah. that sense of those, those extra ways that we relate to ourselves yeah. or that we relate to the experience that kind of add yeah, extra pressure, yeah, add more contraction, more friction. And so one way we can speak about our practice and what we've been exploring here in retreat is that we're exploring, yeah, or we're training, <laughs> or we're learning, practicing ways um, to let go of these additional errors. Sometimes to recognize that movement and maybe not, yeah, not get involved at all. At other times, recognizing that's happening and then just putting that down, yeah, letting it go even a little bit. Yeah. And the different ways that we've been practicing—that's what they do. So this morning, you know, the practice of, you know, relating, um, responding yeah, to pain. Yeah in in different ways, through soothing, through relaxing. Yeah. Through opening. One of my first arrows on this retreat is these new headsets. (laughs) Mm. Just here, right here the example, you know, keeps you know, my ears are not the right shape. My ears are not the right shape. Why do I have, you know, the wrong sh- shape of ears? Yeah. Or you know, why did they change them? <laughs> Previous ones they worked, you know. So what if they were probably broken? <laughs> or oh, these are better. Yeah, so we kind of see the layers. Yeah. So we work skillfully yeah, with pain in the body in, in these ways. Yeah. Um, we bring meta. as we've been doing, to ourselves, to another. Or compassion, like we were uh, doing this afternoon. We listen to to someone else. Someone else is listening to us. And that also can sometimes just open up that contractedness, open up uh, supporters to let go, let go of those extra arrows that are in the mix, that are in the mix. And it's interesting to reflect, you know, as we um, engage in these ways, as we engage in these ways, working skillfully, breathing, soothing the body or the heart and mind, uh, bringing metta, bringing compassion to the experience. We may be yeah, alleviating suffering to some degree, and this is important. It yeah. doesn't mean that the pain disappears. Yeah. Sometimes... Huh? You think you can fix it? Let's, let's give it a shot. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You're about to see more arrows because he's probably going to be able to fix it. And then how embarrassing is that going to be for me? Anyway. So it doesn't mean that the pain disappears. Yeah? Completely. Sometimes it might. But the suffering, yeah, the suffering lessons. Yeah. Suffering lessons. Yeah. Even a tiny little bit can be um, so significant. yeah, So significant. Even a tiny little bit less pressure, less contraction. Yeah. Less ill-being. Mm. Such a difference. So let's see if we can fix this. Are you going to tape it to my face? We did that once. It didn't work either. Shall I turn it off? All right, you're probably not seeing me blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if this works. And you get the entertainment of my wonderful <laughs> new jewelry here. Yeah. And so if we come back to that sense, you know, as we change the way of relating, as we let go of some of those arrows, yeah, even a little bit less suffering yeah, is significant. And, you know, if if you were exploring that today with with body discomfort we know that a little bit less discomfort can make a difference between um, something that's manageable and something that's overwhelming and draining yeah is the volume still okay yeah because it's not as close to my mouth as it was so another interesting thing that we may have uh, noticed or that we might notice when we reflect on our practice and our experience can be that um, when we attend skillfully, yeah, when we engage with discomfort, with the painful, with the difficult, when we bring metta, when we bring compassion. Yeah. So one thing that does is yeah, it might alleviate the suffering Take the suffering out of the equation or reduce it, the sense of problematic. But we can also see that actually it also brings a sense of well-being. Yeah, and those two are connected, but it's helpful to see both. Yeah. So an attitude of metta or compassion yeah, can feel good. Yeah, can feel good. Seeing with clarity, yeah, opening to our experience and attending to it yeah, can feel wholesome. Yeah. Does that make sense to people? A little bit? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so kind of, I, I'm, I'm going to, over this talk, kind of keep doing this, keep pulling these two very connected things into, into kind of, to, to see them clearly, two threads, very related so we have this kind of practicing in a way that just reduces um, the suffering from the experience a little bit or a lot. Yeah. But at the same time, brings also well-being. Yeah. Brings well-being, feels wholesome, feels good. Yeah. And we may tend to, to see one of these more than the other. Yeah. And that's why kind of just like pulling them out, teasing them out. And I think it's really interesting. So because I'm talking, that's what we're going to be exploring (laughs) this evening. And hopefully you'll also find this interesting, this relationship, this um, way that our experience um, evolves or is shaped. So I want to... share another teaching from, from the Buddha and this is actually going to come in the form of a, s- of a story rather than a text and it's one of my um, it's one of my favorite uh, stories yeah, from the tradition and in this uh, story um, there's, a, there's a woman who has lost her child yeah. And she's very distressed and distraught. And she wanders around her village, her area, trying to find some solace. And she hears about the Buddha, this great teacher, this great sage, this great being, yeah, the awakened one. And so in her distress she comes to him and she asks him for his help mm-hmm. and he's willing to help and then she asks him can you bring my child back? Yeah, That is what she wants. Can you bring my child back? and here's what the buddha here's his response to that he doesn't um say yes or no (laughs) yeah he says i will help you yeah i will help you but i need you to do something for me so that i can help you and so he asks her to go back to her village and to bring him a mustard seed. Yeah. And mustard seeds, very common ingredient in Indian cooking. Yeah. To bring him a mustard seed from a home, from a house, that has not known grief and loss. Yeah. And so she goes. Yeah. And she travels. Yeah from house to house in her village. And she knocks on each door and she asks, can I have a mustard seed? And people are, of course, willing to give her a mustard seed. But when she asks, have you known, has this family, has this house, has this home known death? Have you known grief? Have you known loss? Yeah. The answer is always yes. Yes. Yeah. The answer is always yes. And so she takes her time, and she goes along this journey. And eventually, she understands that there is no family, there is no home that has not faced this also, that does not know this experience of death, of loss, of grief, of separation. And she returns to the Buddha yeah. to tell him so. And so I, I th- there's many reasons why I love this story. Um, and, and one of them is the way the Buddha meets her. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't try and explain things. Yeah. And he doesn't tell her, what she should understand or how she should feel. Yeah. He's respectful. Yeah. And he's patient. And here he's allowing her to d- make the journey yeah. that she needs to make in her own way, at her own pace, in her own time. Yeah. So, so much compassion and wisdom in the way He responds and holds her through that journey. And I often remember the way the Buddha spoke about grief. He said, grief is a natural emotion. It's a natural emotion. And sometimes people feel like, oh, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this. It's a natural emotion, natural emotion and we cannot put a timeline on that you know whether the grief the loss that we feel is for a loved one or for ourselves yeah our own health our own well-being mm. cannot put a timeline on it yeah. open to it with compassion with respect mm-hmm. And I also love the teaching yeah, that I feel the Buddha offered yeah. without saying it in words. Yeah. Offered a teaching. Go and find me this. Mm-hmm. And realize that you are not alone. Yeah. That you are not alone in this experience. And sometimes when we can open to this, that sense of connection, that sense of a shared human condition, this is significant, it's meaningful. And it can support us in navigating ourselves on this journey of life and death. Difficult events, difficult periods of our lives. The Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah, used to start every Dharma talk, apparently, (laughs) that's what we're told, or many of them, by greeting the audience in this way. He would say, I think the volume needs to go up a bit later. Oh, and I need to keep talking so that we know that it's gone up. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Is it going up? How's that in the back? Is that better or still not so much? Yeah. So Ajahn Chah used to begin his talks by greeting the audience and saying, Dear sisters and brothers, in aging sickness, and death. Yeah. Dear brothers and sisters, in aging illness and death. Just that reminder, that remembrance that yeah, we each meet this in our particular ways, with our particular stories. Yeah. It's not that we're all the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not that we're all the same. But we share this. It's not the burden of one. It's the burden of all. It's the experience of all of us. In the story of Gautami, she, um, Um. this experience, this teaching from the Buddha conveyed in this way, opens up something opens up a sense of well-being of agency and of compassion and she actually becomes a nun with the aspiration to awaken so that she can support other beings with their suffering so possibilities open up possibilities open up with that journey When I was reflecting on this um, story today, I, I was remembering uh, another story much closer <laughs> um, to, well, in my own experience. and That's some years ago when a good friend of ours, uh, who happens to be Palestinian, Uh, His niece, who was nine, was diagnosed with um, bone cancer. And he asked us to help his sister and her family. Uh, We were in Israel at that time, which is where I'm from. And it's a process if you're Palestinian and you need um, complex medical treatment like cancer treatment. Uh, That is not available in Palestine. They don't have those medical facilities. And so you need to... mm, So you need to go to um, Israel in order to get the treatment. And that entails permits and paperwork and um, everything happening in a language that you don't speak. So it's quite a complex process. So we and other friends were helping the family to negotiate all of that and then also Palestinians cannot drive into Israel. So helping them, meeting them at the checkpoints, driving them to the hospital and then visiting them in hospital because once the parents come with the child to the hospital, they're not allowed to leave. Because yeah. Yeah. their permit is only for the hospital. So they're only in the hospital until they all go home again. So bringing food, yeah, shopping, yeah, whatever they need, all of that. And I remember one of the first times that we uh, visited them in the hospital, just came to bring supplies and, and to be with them because their family couldn't come. Yeah. So to be with them there. And talking to the father who's since then, very close friend of ours. That was just the the weaving of the relationship. And I remember him turning to us and saying, just like my daughter, yeah, there's many other children in my country that need this help. And I appreciate what you and your friends are doing so much, but I want to ask you to help them too. Yeah? to help them, too. Not a demand. (laughs) It wasn't a demand. It was a heartfelt, beautiful wish and aspiration with so much strength, so much courage, and such a teaching for me about our human possibility, our human capacity. I feel moved to say that uh, this little girl who was 9 at the time, she's 19 now, I think. Yeah. And she's just starting her second year of medical school. Um, yeah, I often just feel when I speak about her and her family, who've been great teachers for me, I also feel like I want to share that, that part. And so when we look at these stories, one thing that perhaps we can see is that we are shaped by the conditions of our lives. We're shaped by the conditions of our lives, by the events of our lives. They're part of what shapes us. In the exercise today, Nathan mentioned, you know, sometimes we see trees or we see mountains, yeah, Or we see the earth. And we see how they are shaped by wind, by rain, by water. You see that. You go to coastal areas, you see those trees that are growing sideways. (laughs) I love that. But that's, you know, it's shaped by the wind. They didn't choose to grow that way. A lot of the, I said I grew up in Israel, a lot of the beautiful places in my original part of the world where I grew up um, are these deserts with these ravines that are shaped by flash floods and by wind. They're shaped by these forces. And can we see the beauty in that. Often in nature, we can see the beauty in that. Yeah. I remember being in this area of the high Himalayas, <laughs> which was part of what was really stunning about it was that every single tree looked completely different <laughs> to the other ones. You know. It was almost like you couldn't believe they were the same species because the conditions were intense. Yeah. So every tree had grown Differently, yeah, with the conditions that kind of maybe, you know, had branches on this side and not on this one, or you know, had one growing that way and then, you know, whatever. They were all, you know, and they weren't classically beautiful trees, yeah. But they were so beautiful, yeah. They were so beautiful in their uniqueness and in the rawness yeah. of how they were shaped through the conditions yeah. of their environment. And I sometimes wonder, you know, what would it mean to look also at each other and to look at ourselves in that way, yeah. to see also the beauty in the way we have been shaped, yeah. in the way we have grown yeah, to be. And to include in that, yeah, to include in that those, yeah, back to the inner critic, those parts that are not good enough, and to see them also as part of the wholeness as part of the wholeness I was remembering today also uh, one of my closest friends who have been friends since uh, since the beginning of secondary school so since we were about twelve and when we were fifteen, he um, misjudged a dive into a swimming pool and ended up with a spinal cord injury. And he—he he was one of those. He is <laughs> one of those get-on-with-it, yeah, go-getters. And so, after a year in rehab and all that, he just kept on going, yeah, with his life, doing, doing, doing. And then about 10 years later, when we were 25, he woke up one morning and he realized that he no longer dreamt of himself as walking. So in his dreams, he was also in a wheelchair. And at that point, he started what he called his mourning period, his grieving time. For 10 years. Yeah. And that was that whole process. He ended up making a film about it. But that whole process was that process of kind of digestion, yeah, and taking the time and letting the grief take its time and show itself yeah, in its own way. But also of then embracing the totality of who he was at that time and the ongoing change, yeah, of our lives. Yeah, this is something else because nothing is fixed, yeah, just like the ravines and the mountains and the trees. We too are shaped, yeah, and shaping, yeah. in process, changing. And so with all of this, yeah, this importance back to this attending to experience. How do we relate to this? Mm. How do we relate to our lives? How do we relate to our experience? And this includes both that capacity to open to what needs our attention, what needs our tenderness, what needs our care, our compassion, our wisdom but also opening to what we're grateful for what we're nourished by yeah what supports us yeah. and this can be really simple things the beauty of the trees yeah or of the sky the presence and inspiration of others yeah the softness of the breeze, yeah, the glory of the sunshine, the little things, nourishing ourselves, nourishing ourselves. As, as we do so, we develop resilience, yeah, develop resilience, yeah. at our own pace, remember Gotami and her journey, at our own pace, in our own time, as is appropriate and possible at any given moment, and it can be interesting as we do this, we discover something, we discover that compassion, the capacity to open to pain, and gratitude, appreciation, joy, the capacity to open to the beautiful and the good and the nourishing, it's the same system (laughs) that opens to both. The same heart and mind yeah. that are open to both. It's the same. Yeah. So as we grow in one, we grow in both. The more capacity we have yeah. to turn to the difficult and the painful with compassion, yeah. the more capacity we have to feel appreciation and gratitude for the good, and the other way around. Yeah, the other way around, does that make sense to people? Yeah, it's, it's, it's often something we really understand and at the same time it's counterintuitive, yeah, (laughs) it's not how we, how we tend to actually live, so just remembering that, one heart and mind, that knows compassion and knows gratitude, appreciation, and joy. It's one. Yeah. Yeah, it's one. And it can also be interesting to reflect for ourselves. Mm-hmm. When there is compassion, there is less dukkha. Yeah. Back to what I said right at the beginning. Even a little bit less. And when there's appreciation or gratitude or joy, there's less dukkha. Yeah? Even a little bit less. And we don't um, have to choose between the two. <laughs> this is also something that I want to do. To say, sorry. The more we. Um, the more we understand our experience and become familiar with it, we see that we have the capacity for both. Yeah, one does not rule out the other. Yeah, it's the opposite. The opposite. And when they are present, less dukkha, less suffering. So yesterday, Nathan was speaking to us, very beautifully, about dukkha, and what it arises with. This is helpful to also remember and understand, when there is dukkha, there is some degree of demand, and this is the kind of what we call the avoidable dukkha, the workable dukkha. And there's contraction, and there's push and pull on experience. And there's also often a stronger, louder, yeah, more um, perceptible sense of self, with me, yeah. And when there's less dukkha, all of these also go down. That's interesting to see. When there's less dukkha, there's less demand, there's less contraction, yeah. There's less uh, push and pull. And the sense of me also is more quiet. Mm -hmm. And so this is interesting because we see this relationship. And we also see that when there's less dukkha, there's less contraction, less demand, and a quieter sense of self. When there's less demand, when there's less contraction, there's less dukkha. And when there's a quieter sense of self, yeah, also let's do God. And again we can see this in moments of experience. It's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. When we practice metta, yeah, just pay attention. When the metta's going, <laughs> yeah, or the compassion, how loud is the sense of me? Even if it's self metta or self compassion. Yeah. How loud is it? Mm-hmm. So we can start to see these relationships and there's a lot of freedom to be explored through that. When someone else is listening to us, yeah. or we are listening to another wholeheartedly, yeah, what's the level of contraction and demand? Yeah. How dense and loud is the sense of me in mind? It's part of what we're exploring in the listening exercises. In moments when we attend to our experience with interest, with curiosity, with creativity, again, noticing this, if you wish, you don't have to. (laughs) Noticing this relationship, it's really interesting. And in moments when we remember our interconnectedness, we remember our shared experience with living beings. Again, what's the demand like? What's the push and pull like? I saw some of you today, it's very beautiful, lying on the grass (laughs) in the sun in the afternoon. Even if it wasn't you, if you just imagine yourself like that, in those moments, we're just being... Lying there. How much demand? How much contraction? How much dukkha? How loud is the sense of self? Just interesting to see. And it's a a very light exploration, very light touch exploration uh, here an inquiry. Not heavy handed and not with a particular agenda of needing to quiet in this or get rid of that. We're just interested to see, is there a relationship here? What does that mean for the possibilities in my experience? What does it mean? So I'd like to close with a poem and I'm sure many of you have heard this poem before, but can't hear it enough, I think. And it speaks to many of the things I touched on today. It speaks to our commonality and our mutuality. Yeah, what connects us, the shared aspect of our experience. It speaks to um the fact that we can include, yeah all of us, the wholeness of ourselves in who we are, and that we belong, yeah. we belong in this world. Yeah. There is a place for each of us. And so the poem is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. And she says, You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. Calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting. Over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So thank you for your practice, your listening, and your presence. And let's just have a quiet minute to close.